1: this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by three authors, um, a Paul Jupe, Amy Erica Smith, and Anon edward Sookie, um, who are authors of The Knowledge Polity Teaching and Research in the Social Sciences. Social Sciences? This is published by Oxford University Press in 2022. And I have to tell you, it's a compelling book. It's an important book. And I was fascinated to be able to read it. And I'm delighted to be able to talk to the three of you about this really interesting research. Um, so I'd like to welcome uh, my guests to the podcast and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project that has been percolating, it seems, for quite some time.
0: All right. Um, well, maybe I will start off with the background on how we came to this topic, and then I'll let each of the... Um, by the way, this is Amy Erica. Um, <laughs> and I will um, start off by talking a little bit about the, about the topic, and then go on and talk a, um, more about the... Um, I'll let each person introduce themselves and give them a l- little bit about their background so the impetus for this project came out of a conversation on facebook back in the days when facebook there was a period there was a golden era of facebook in my academic life when people were actually having real conversations on facebook which doesn't really seem to be happening so much anymore um but i would say this was probably back what 2015 paul 2015 2016 something like that we had this conversation on facebook this is, you know, before the election, before all of that, um, we were having, um, so, uh, David Samuels, uh, who's a professor at University of Minnesota, a political scientist at University of Minnesota, had done some analysis of his own data at, uh, the journal Comparative Political Studies, uh, for which he, uh, is an editor, um, where he was auditing journal uh, submissions and publications and discovered that women, uh, that uh, women were dramatically less likely to submit work to CPS than it seemed like they should based on their representation within the field of political scientists. But that conditional on women submitting, he could not tell that there was any bias against women, as far as he could see from the data. So that like women, publications by women were being accepted at the same rate, or submissions by women were being accepted at the same rate as submissions by men. uh, But women were not submitting as many things as they, um, as it seemed like they should. And Paul and I were on the same Facebook thread um, and started talking about it. We were just like, you know, geeking out at this, like what could cause this? How, what could be driving this? And, you know, we immediately start pulling in our sort of like all of our different hats and different research uh, perspectives uh, from political behavior research, from social network research, political psychology research. So we start, you know, immediately like throwing out a whole bunch of hypotheses and we're like, oh, well, somebody could do a survey about this. Well, obviously it would be Paul and me. If anybody's going to do it, it's going to be me and Paul. And Paul was like, well, let's bring an on end. Um, and that's the genesis of all of this. Uh, so as far as my own personal background, um, I... I have my PhD from the University of Pittsburgh in 2005. Uh, Anand and I first met, uh, I think it was the January of my second year in the PhD program. I went to my first conference. Anand and I were doing a work that I I would, what what was, Anand's dissertation was a very similar topic to what would eventually become my own. Uh, dissertation work. Uh, He was a few years ahead of me in the PhD program. Uh, And uh, so I cold emailed him. I was like, hey, we're doing similar work. You want to get together? And uh, we walked around uh, New Orleans. Um, That's, that is the start of it all. Um, So then I met Paul when, gosh, when did I meet Paul? Um, I think the first time I met him was also at a conference uh, in, I think, You were discussant. yes, you were my discussant at a conference. Um, I think I was right at the tail end of my PhD program, finishing up, Uh, hadn't yet gotten a job. Um, And Paul, I was I had just started doing research in religion and politics. Uh, Paul was a discussant of mine on a paper, super nice and enthusiastic and helpful and kind. and I was like, oh, well, here's somebody who's like a big name in the field who actually is willing to talk to me and be nice. Um, and then somehow over time, Paul and I like actually struck up, you know, a real, you know, like collaboration and more of a real friendship, um, more of a real friendship. I don't know if he would. <laughs> anyway, sorry, it's going to make a stupid joke and I can't even come up with it. Um Um, anyway, so that's, that's my story. Um, how I got involved in this, uh, ended up at, uh, teaching at Iowa state university, uh, where I came into it 2012 and I've been here ever since. Uh, Anna, do you want to take it?
3: Sure. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, that's right. I remember, um, walking around the French quarter with Amy Erica and we were, um, looking for, you know, uh, beignets and coffee and probably not looking very hard because, you know, it's everywhere. Um, and uh yeah i had a had a great conversation um i met paul when i was a sophomore in college um so paul was um uh, my undergrad advisor and i uh so i started working with him when i was still a teenager and i am still working with him um so be careful about your co-authors because they stick around um <laughs> uh, but yeah um i uh, so I've known Paul for a very long time, and uh, we've, we've worked on many projects together. And um, with respect to this particular project, uh, as Amy Erica noted, um, there were those kind of conversations in the you know, 2015, 2016, 2017 time that were, that were going on about what could be happening here with... Um, you know, submissions and publications. And, and I would just also add that, you know, another big kind of point of conversation that was a jumping off point for this project for us was like the work of uh, Teal and Thelen, um, you know, kind of uh, looking at look these dynamics across, you know, other journals as well. Um, and so kind of spurred conversation for us about, well, what is it that could be happening here? What role might things like, co-authorship networks play in this process and we seem like good people to try to figure this out Um, and then everything kind of started rolling from there uh, with with stoppages but um, but also kind of like additions and so forth Uh, just kind of quickly a little bit about me so I I uh, went to the Ohio State University for graduate school um, and uh, I Um, I'm now an associate professor of political science at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I've been out here since 2009. Um, Yeah, and just still hanging around these
4: mountains. So uh, Paul? Yeah. So, um, you've heard my, my connection to, to these two. Um, and pretty much when I like think this is the story of my, my coauthorship is whenever I find people who are interesting and willing to work hard and have ideas, just grab onto them and, and try to st- stick with them as much as possible. And, and, uh, apparently they, they can't get rid of me. So, um, I'm really fortunate to to have been able to to meet these two and at various stages in their in their career becoming political scientists and and to keep working with them. Um, I'm yeah, I'm sort of, we, we cover the range of institutions, um, so America at R2, um, and then on and at R1. And I'm at a liberal arts college and have been, uh, my entire career. So I started at Denison, got my PhD in 97 from Wash U in St. Louis, um, and then went to a couple of liberal arts colleges for, uh, short-term contracts and then ended up at Denison since 1999. Um, I would say that's since the Harry Potter series has been out to, to date it, (laughs) It's a long time. Um, Yeah, political scientist and Um, and was the only kind of quant guy, Um, so feeling kind of isolated. Also, just I I do a lot of research, which isn't all that common in uh, liberal arts college faculty, and so actually I started being interested in looking at the discipline as an object of study um, a little bit earlier than this project. Um, I did a study of a survey of political scientists asking about their reviewing practices because I was doing tons, and it just felt like no one had any idea what was normative, Um, and I thought Hey, if we're going to reward this or really like selfishly, if I'm going to get rewarded for this, um, I want to, you know, be able to compare it to something. Um, so started with that survey and then, and then from there, you know, I mean, there's just all kinds of really super interesting questions to start asking. And so it was on, it was on my radar screen. Um, and I was looking for sort of more of these opportunities, like what's next, um, when that Facebook conversation happened in the the golden age of academic Facebook, which was brief. Um, so Yeah.
1: Uh, thank you for all introducing yourselves and and talking about um, the the sort of enjoyable connections that lead to collaborations and co-authorships I myself have enjoyed quite a few of those um, and they <clears throat> and they can be fortuitous and and sort of random also <laughs> um, my latest book is coming out of a Twitter conversation <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you uh, Paul as you sort of noted you sort of had been looking at political science, the discipline as a subject for study. And the book that you all have produced is not just political science, it is broadly social science, but you are looking specifically a political scientist and sociologist for a lot of the research. But it's a complicated um, sort of study. Uh, of political science in multiple sort of directions um, and intersections. Um, Can I ask you all to sort of lay out the parameters of what you decided to look at and, and to some degree, you also connect it to the fact that the pandemic started and the George Floyd protests and the Me Too movement all kind of had capacities in, in a little bit of framing what you were doing. Um, so I, I just want listeners to understand what the study was before we get into what you found.
0: <laughs> Paul, would you like to take it?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, so this is, this is, a, a, a warning, um, to authors that they should produce their books more quickly, um, <laughs> because events overtake you and then you have to deal with them. Um, so, you know, we had to deal with the, with the pandemic, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, we started by with political scientists, um, and, you know, no one Well, APSA was unwilling to share an email list, um, with us. And so we had to go gather our own. Um, and so we started, and this, this was kind of fortuitous too. Um, we started with a list of, of APSA member departments. And so that's not every department, but it's, it's pretty close. Um, and we randomly selected half of those and then, you know, ourselves and got some students to help us, um, gather all the emails from, um, from the websites. Um, eventually we decided that we wanted to include sociology. And so we really just, we stuck with the same institutions. Um, and so they don't always have a sociology department and sometimes it's anth, and sometimes it's, it's all kinds of things, all kinds of different names. Sometimes they add criminology in there anyway. So we gathered all of those folks. Um, so they're paired with the political science departments at particular universities. So in, in that way, it's, it's, um, uh, hierarchical, hierarchically structured, um, and they're comparable because they're coming from the same institutions. Um, so we started there and just, and surveyed them. And this was in 2017, um, a little bit later for the sociologists. Um, but then, you know, I mean, just as we got going and, and just got excited and realized we needed to, needed to get some additional evidence. And so we added, um, lifetime scores. Uh, so we gathered that, um, from various sources, initially from Google Scholar, and that wasn't really sufficient, and so we went to Web of Science and gathered those. Um, we, you know, we gathered Twitter data because uh, we asked people for their um, for their Twitter handles, and you know, some had that. Um, we went digging for personal web pages. I mean, so we really tried to get a comprehensive sense of of kind of what their public presence, um, what their public presence was. I think that captures it. Actually, we tried to get economists involved in this too. Um, And holy cow, they sting you with their time. (laughs) The response rate was so bad that we just couldn't even use it. Um, So so we got data from like... 75 economists or something compared to 900 sociologists and you know 800 political scientists so um wow anyway.
1: <laughs> economists don't want to take surveys yeah. got it weren't getting yeah. paid so <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah so when we've um, we we've had economists at some point say well you can't really count this as a survey of the social sciences unless you include
1: economists and we're like well we tried and so in looking at the, the political scientists and sociologists and the 75 economists <laughs> who responded, um, what were you asking them about? Uh, because the, the thrust of the research is, is really about um, sort of your experience as an academic um, and, and how, you know, how being white or male or non-white Or female has potentially influenced how you experience your life as a political scientist, as a sociologist and where some of the differences are for those who are sort of cis white male versus everybody else, perhaps. Um, Can you explain a little bit? I mean, you, you talk a lot about gender, um, which has also been, fairly significantly studied in the academy. And then you also talk about how you were trying to get at some of the data around race and ethnicity, and that was a little bit harder to tease out as well. Um, So I'd, I'd like to sort of lay out some of the questions and points that you were trying to get at with regard to your surveys of all these social scientists. Okay. Um, I can take the,
0: the question about uh, race and gender. So we, I would say that we came at it with, um, I guess you can think of it as um, maybe thinking about it in, a, in that sort of an empiricist framework, we could think of it in terms of um, dependent variables and theoretical approaches or, you know, key sort of theoretically relevant independent variables and then also demographic independent variables that we were interested in. Um, the dependent variables that we were interested in, the things that we were interested in explaining was basically productivity. So when Paul was talking about, say, lifetime scores, he meant um, lifetime sort of publications, um, things that are documented in, you know, Google Scholar and such. Um our key independent variables that we we're really interested in. And this came out of you know intense social discussion uh, in within the academy as well as within society more broadly about inequalities. That was really, I think, in the mid two thousand, mid sorry, mid twenty tens, ramping up and has be- had become really very relevant in a lot of society, and only became more relevant in, um, you know at, at, during the Trump years. Uh, Which may be to come again. Anyway, um, so the Trump, um, so the, um, I would say the, one of the things that became evident really quickly to me as I began doing this research um, and, and also This was for me, like for Paul, this was not my only foray into trying to uh, examine academia. I got involved in a project on uh, syllabi as well, Uh, published several publications related to um, gender representation on syllabi and uh, how students respond to gender representation on syllabi. Uh, It's it's kind of a separate parallel line of research that um, helped me think these things through. Anyway, one thing that became clear really fast was that most published research is looking at gender and there's just not a lot of public published research or ongoing research in political science looking or in sociology looking at academia and race. Um, And I think there are, are technological and sort of like empirical reasons for this. Uh, And then there are probably sort of larger sort of social prejudices and biases kinds of reasons for this. The technical reasons for it is there are more women (laughs) in these fields than there are faculty of color. It's easier to study large minorities than it is to study small minorities quantitatively. Um, And in gender in particular has, um, is relatively easy to study because names are so strongly gendered. Uh, first names are so strongly gendered um, in American society that uh, you can tell a lot about, uh, you, you can guess somebody's gender with pretty strong accuracy most of the time based on their first name, whereas you can't, I mean, first name is a much weaker signal of, of race and ethnicity. Um, So, so names, name data is an important reason that people are are often studying gender and not other issues. Um, So, and then I think from sort of a more of a sociological perspective of why are people doing this, I think a lot of the people who've been spearheading uh, the research on gender in, uh, in both political science and sociology have been women, often white women, um, and it tends to be the minoritized group uh, that um, th- th- that will re- do this research. So we have, because of the dramatic underrepresentation of faculty of color in uh, political science, I think in sociology, I think we, we have um, had lower uh, lower representation of that research. So anyway, we thought that a survey would be a great way to get at this, uh, and most people don't have survey data. So a survey enables us to address all sorts of issues related to gender identity um, and race that other researchers haven't been able to get at. In terms of our uh, sort of theoretical approaches, we took an approach that was focused on uh, social networks on personality and on institutions. Uh, so we looked at three big buckets of kind of explanatory factors that could help ex- uh, could help us understand how gender and race uh, are playing out in uh, in levels of productivity. Um, and I, Paul, would you like to add anything there on, with respect to those big buckets?
4: Well, I mean, we all study. We all study political behavior, political participation, right? And like, <laughs> this is the model. I mean, so it was just—it felt so natural—and and, uh, for us to take take up those things um, that we're really strongly borrowing, I think, from um, from political science, to, from our own political science research to to go down these paths. Uh,
3: yeah, and and I would add too that you know the the other things that, in addition to kind of those three those three big. Categories, um, you know, we also really wanted to take the opportunity to uh, do things like document workflow for for people, right? So we wanted to understand if you take a typical piece that you're working on, right, or project, or however you want to think about it, what what are the many different stages of that project, right, from beginning to end. So we wanted to like get data that we could actually kind of bring to a conversation that looks at what a typical project's lifespan is, you know, um, because we did, we saw all kinds of chatter about that. But we didn't really think that there was a way to, to quantify and compare those experiences easily if we didn't kind of do something with this. In addition, we wanted to really understand something about kind of people's orientations towards all of these different processes that we're involved with, too, right? So yes, there's these kind of big um, factors with you know networks, personality, and institutions. We're we're focused on those, but we also wanted to collect information on okay, what are people's feelings about the review process, right? Um, like what kinds of anxieties, if you will, do people have about that process, which is really a big part of, you know, kind of the ways that we are, you know, evaluated and promoted and, 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 and something that we're called to do as part of this knowledge polity, um, right? As, and we'll get to that, I think, in terms of the way that we're thinking about academia. But that was also some of the, the information that we really wanted to get in our uh, our study that we um, administered to political scientists, and sociologists.
1: And <clears throat> I do want to talk about the knowledge polity. Um, and I also want to talk about a little bit about the idea of the academy, um, the, the sort of mythological idea of the ivory tower, shall we say, and the reality Of it. Um, I, I recently talked to two authors of an edited book called The Wives of Western Philosophy. And one of their points is that the concept of the individual scholar sitting at home or in their office creating knowledge is something we all sort of have in our imaginary spaces but as we all know that's really not how it works um, <laughs> and so I'd love for you to explain what you mean by the knowledge polity and <clears throat> and to some degree what contributes to it
3: yeah sure thanks America I mean so we had started from a point of you know thinking about you, you hear a lot of discussion about, you know, the pipeline of projects, right? And uh, and so kind of having a number of things going, and and that was also, you know, incidentally, right, um, kind of things that we were thinking about when we wanted to collect that information on the lifespan of a particular project. But as we started thinking about kind of like conversations about the, the pipeline, the academic pipeline, we started to think that like, okay, well, this is useful, but it isn't probably like the way that we should be thinking about this. And so we started to, to discuss, um, you know, metaphors, <laughs> um, or, or frameworks or however you want to think about this, right. Um, for capturing academe and all the different components of academe. And we also right, wanted to, um, put something in place that we thought was kind of an important statement about what makes all of this go. And that's kind of where we ended up, and perhaps no surprise, three political scientists coming up with the knowledge polity right um, <laughs> like in, in a time when institutions are under attack you know like uh, we here we go, okay um, but we were you know thinking about a um, a system where people have kind of rights and responsibilities. And that's, that's where we kind of, you know, kept coming back to the, something like what we ended up with with the knowledge polity. We wanted to think about this as a system. And and as you kind of uh, mentioned a second ago, Lily, right, with knowledge, right, in our office, but the limitations of that idea, we wanted to kind of push us from me to we, right, to think about kind of and perhaps, again, no, no surprise, network scholars thinking about interconnection in a relationship, right? But that idea of kind of like, well, what is the sense of community that we are in, right? What And what are our responsibilities to others? Because those are locked into big parts of what we do. Teaching, mentorship, reviewing behavior, all of those things, right? So we wanted to kind of stress that, you know, from me to we angle, and therefore we're all in this together, And there are things that we do by ourselves, and there are rights that come with this, right? But there are also these kinds of, if you will, responsibilities or civic duties that come with being a member of the knowledge polity. And that was a a big kind of push. We thought that was a good fit for all of the different types of activities that are involved in academe.
1: Anybody else want to chime in? Okay, let's move on. Um, So one of... Well, not one up, obviously the outcome of your survey and your analysis is, you know, sort of interest, not sort of incredibly interesting and compelling. And as I said to you all before I got on, this book is really like a lively conversation and and certainly not a, a dry social science book. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. Um, but you also talk about the fact that you had some disagreements in terms of um, what you concluded from the data that you found. So I'd love for all of you to talk about first, what the outcomes were that you you all saw as you were sort of analyzing the data and and what came out of it, um, and also some of the points of disagreement. Oh, fun.
0: Yeah, so first (laughs) of all, I'm really glad to hear you say, Lily, that um, you hear our argument in the book. We worked hard, actually, to write that argument into the, the, into the book. We wanted it to feel like a conversation because we really are three people with very distinctive voices and personalities. Um, and I would say that, you know, as I was reading Paul's text, often I would be like, no, this is wrong. <laughs> or not, not um, so much, you know, we rarely disagreed about data analysis though, you know, we did have occasionally have disagreements about data analysis, which we resolved in professional, respectful ways that ultimately were better. Um, but the, the bigger agreements were disagreements were what does the data mean? Uh, what story can you read into this? Um, how far can you take the interpretation of these data? Um, so I would say to take one example Uh, of a place where there were some disagreements initially about how to analyze the data, but then ultimately bigger disagreements about um, what it all means was the um, what to make of gaps, how to analyze gaps in productivity and submissions and publications, and then how to interpret them. Um, So we, um, it's clear there are some both gender and race gaps in productivity um, where over a lifetime, for instance, women produce um, somewhat fewer articles than do men. Over a lifetime also, uh, black and Latinx scholars tend to produce Somewhat fewer articles and, and other kinds of publications than do white scholars. Uh, so, but these gaps are not perfectly consistent across all cohorts. They're um, they're not perfectly consistent across all age cohorts. Are not necessarily perfectly consistent across the academic lifespan. And of course, um, as anybody who does this kind of quantitative research knows, distinguishing what's a um, what's a life course effect or generational effect from a generational effect or a time effect is really hard to figure out. Um, so, you know, are these, are these gaps going to just disappear over time or are there persistent barriers that are causing these, um, these to appear? All of these questions were things that, You know, take careful, really, really careful data analysis and digging in and multiple measures of the dependent variable to, or of the general dependent variable to try to get more specifically at what's happening. So there was lots and lots of going back to the drawing board, let's find more data, let's download lifetime scores on Google Scholar and things like that to try to tease out further what's happening here. Um, And some disagreements about, like, how do you, about like exciting things like interaction terms, which I'm not going to go into on this podcast. Um, but how do you, you know, run interaction terms and in these kinds of models looking at uh, different intersectional groups. Um, so there were some, you know, lots of empirical methodological exploration, trying to figure out what was happening and then to try to explain it in the end, do, what would we say about, um, Gaps, And I think we came down in the end, ultimately, I think we all actually end up agreeing for the most part that gaps are small and inconsistent and still there. Um, And there's a question about to what extent will they just disappear over time as things change or not. Um, And then I would say there were gap questions about things like um, differences in teaching loads. Uh, so we found, for instance, that, uh, that there were, um, differences in teaching loads by gender, by race, uh, that where, for instance, some women have, um, there are particular points in the academic life course that women are teaching less than men, uh, Seems likely to be related for, to childbearing years, uh, but how to talk about that? How to understand it? Uh, questions like that uh, were ones that led to really active discussions. Sometimes, you know, like bordering on arguments, um, civil ones, uh, but arguments among us as we uh, as we were trying to understand what was going on. Uh, Anand says, sort of civil. <laughs>
3: I, I felt like the peacemaker sometimes, you know, like, yeah, yeah. there were definitely, yeah, no, no, they, yeah, they were, right. Amy Eric is right. But yeah, think, but yeah. they were heated. They were definitely heated.
4: Yeah. So. Well, cause it, it feels, I mean, it feels real and it's about us and, you know, it also bears on potential, policy, you know, policy adoptions, um, policy directions that again, would affect us in our career. So, I mean, they were intense, but they were, yeah, they were, they were, they were civil, um, but definitely intense. And, and we went to the data. I mean, and I really, this is something I really appreciated is that, you know, even if we had our own sort of beliefs and really strong feelings about this, I mean, we went to the data and we worked, you know, as hard as we could and tried a whole, whole variety of, of ways of thinking about things. And, and I, I agree. I think I I think we agree um, at the end that tentatively, right, that there are some small and inconsistent gaps that, probably accrue over time, or at least, you know, for old, let's, it's better, probably better to put it this way. Um, older faculty have larger gaps than younger faculty do. Um, and so we can't quite tell, right, if, if um, the younger you know, assistant professors are, and when we run out their careers are going to look like today's full professors. And, you know, of course, we seriously doubt it, right? Because there's huge changes in, um, in the disciplines and Me Too and all kinds of things that, that would um that would shift this um so yeah i mean the the thing that i pushed for the the big disagreement initially was you know can we just control for rank and then look at gender gaps or do we need to do interaction terms and look at those gaps within rank um from my perspective the most of the most of those gaps went away when you looked um by rank not totally but but they definitely shrank um and but that's and that's largely where, where we ended up. Except then that's when we added the lifetime um, examination, and that's where we started to see these these gaps growing across time. And so that's you know that's a really important puzzle that we need to keep watching um, across time. I, I don't necessarily want to do another survey <laughs> like this. It was a ton of work, but um, but somebody should take this up and in more than just. Um, you know, more than just scraping, um, data. I think, I think you actually need the survey data to dig into why. Um, so yeah. But I, yeah, I think Amy, Erica hit, hit the, she hit exactly what we we're disagreeing about and how we resolved it.
0: Yeah. I think that there we are a number of, it.
3: right. Sorry. Right. Well, yeah, I I mean, mean, that's we, right. Yeah.
0: yeah we, I, we I think never that never
3: one of it. the things that
0: No, go mm-hmm. ahead. Sorry. I
3: mean, no, no, it's okay. One of the things that I think emerged from those conversations, and you were alluding to this, Amy, Erica, and Paul, is that we're pretty up, we're pretty upfront about what we can't say, right, in the book. Um, and I think that's a good place to be, right? I think there's a a dose of humility in the narrative that uh, that we pushed each other towards, which is a good thing. We had a number of arguments based on the analysis, right, and the data about you know what what stories are consistent with the findings, right and what aren't and you know we were having arguments over potential things that are probably all consistent with what you know what we see um but there uh, there are some things we just can't answer definitively um and it was helpful for us to you know put clear boundaries around those and then point people towards further exploration of them
1: and and so i did go ahead amy
0: erica no i was going to say yeah i think the multivocality of it was nice and that i mean the fact that we disagreed about the interpretation pushed the data analysis to go a lot farther uh, because we just kept going back to the drawing board for more data when we when we disagreed about things. And, and including uh, one thing that we actually none of us have mentioned so far is qualitative data as well. Uh, we sort of topped it off with some qualitative interviews and. Uh, in order to try to further tease out things that we just weren't going to be able to talk about from our quantitative data. Um, And so we kept going back for more information when we couldn't resolve debates. And I think some of these are things that I think it's great that we aren't going to be able to resolve in this book. And we're very clear about this. We're clear about multiple interpretations and ultimately yeah, we need more data, um, and the, these are things that are the, the discipline's going to or the, all the academia in general, the social sciences in general, both sociology and political science are going to continue to struggle with for a while.
1: And and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the sort of different kinds of of the data itself, the qualitative data, as you've been talking a lot about it, but you lead off in lots of places with, the uh, quotes that you got from interviews. And so there's this integration and you note that it was not quite a random sample of people and you wanted to make sure that there were differences represented. And it was a small group of people who you interviewed for, um, for the book. Um, but can you talk a little bit about integrating that, the the sort of commentary and interviews into this big survey that you had done?
0: Anand, would you like to take
1: that? Yeah, uh,
3: sure. Thanks, Amy, Erica. Yeah. So one of the things that occurred to us right after we we had spent some time with the survey data um, was we in some of these conversations about what what the results meant and how people were answering them, um, we started to kind of think about the questions that we didn't ask, right? And so so and then also okay, so what. What might be kind of going on with the ways that people are approaching this? Um, what dimensions of experience are we missing and so forth? And then it occurred to us that you know, it, it, what would be really you know, helpful here would be to, do, to sit down and have in-depth conversations with people um, around these different topics to um, flesh out our understanding of, of the quantitative analysis. And so, yeah, what we did was we we tried to um, get uh, interviews with people in varying types of institutions, varying types of ranks, positions, right, Um, including administrative experience, and then um, racial and gender diversity as well. Um, And we wanted to have long conversations with these folks, and these uh, these conversations were, I think, on average, an hour, right? So they were they were. They were lengthy, um, and we they were they were structured, right? We had kind of a list of questions, but they were also kind of like free flowing. We really wanted to kind of let people talk and 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 hear about kind of what they had to say when we brought up different topics, um, and then also kind of like you know brought in findings that we had um, and and kind of bounce those two off each other, and and that kind of way of collecting the the, the interview data, I think also. Translates really kind of um, you know directly into what you talked about, Lily. With like, well, how did you integrate the two? And, um, and so what we what we did was we kind of took the took the interview uh, data that we got gathered from that, and we we kind of worked it into you know these different analyses. Um, we had been thinking about those places where we needed additional information. Um, as we collected the qualitative interviews. Right. And so it was kind of nice for us to be able to kind of triangulate and situate that stuff. Uh, and then it also, I think helps with the, the flow in the narrative, right. To kind of, um, keep it, keep us moving and introduce different topics and translate those things from a survey context into natural language and back and forth.
4: The other thing we did is, I mean, we're, we're all on Twitter, uh, more or less. And so just constantly noting, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> they're, they're doing exactly what we're talking about in chapter, whatever. Um, let's grab that tweet. So yeah, we're kind of doing those on the fly kind of observations as well.
1: Yes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of this kind of chatter on academic Twitter. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure you found lots of, lots of examples
4: that was also the motivation though. Right. I mean, there's just so much blather and, you know, people like from Harvard talking about their experiences as if everybody goes through that and we're like, no. <laughs> and that's actually been, you know, one of our jobs is we sort of swoop in knowledge polity here and we actually have data on that. Um, I'm sure we're annoying, but, um,
1: but I think it's nice to have some data, to,
4: <laughs> you know, to, to qualify or contextualize what, what people are saying.
1: Yeah. And, and again, that's also, you know, one of my experiences, it's like, yeah, we're not all at an Ivy league in on the East coast with very deep pockets.
0: Yeah. I would say that one of the things that's just super interesting about these, about our data is looking at distributions. Distrib, I mean, we have a number of places uh, where (laughs) histograms play an exciting role in in, in our book. Um, who I'm not sure if I've ever said that word before, th- that phrase before. Histograms play an exciting role, but really, histograms. I mean, just looking at distributions across uh, across academia of things like teaching loads, uh, reviewing load startup funding, well actually we don't look at startup funding, there, we, we bring in research by uh, Jane Lawrence Sumner and Ellen Key on startup funding. Um, but, um, you know, all sorts of resources available for, uh, for professors. Um, yeah, it's just super, in- time spent on research. Uh, super interesting to see the dramatic variation across, um, across the professoriate.
4: One and, thing I love to drop into academic Twitter is, you know, everybody complains, "Oh, I'm so overburdened with reviews. I have so many to do. I have six on my desktop or whatever." Um, and then I swoop in and say, "The average is four a year." And they're like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like settle down everybody, you know. Most most people aren't doing that much. Um, you know, don't get don't get too freaked out. So <laughs>
1: Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, this is always sometimes a fun question for researchers. um, And particularly when you pull together a big survey and you run it, what was surprising in terms of the outcomes? Um, What did you kind of expect? And then what did you get that was perhaps unexpected?
0: Paul, you want to take this?
4: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about. Um, you know, in some ways there was, there were so many things that, that were interesting, I guess, you know, one of the like sort of broad relationships that I thought was interesting is, um, how much, uh, personality seemed to play a role and sort of attitudes about the review process, especially because we're, we're all socialized in such a similar sort of way that, um, to see some of those things pop. Um, were, were really interesting and we could talk more about that. Um, but you know, too, like looking at, I just figured that, um, that productivity might grow over time as, as, you know, you get lower teaching loads and other things. Um, but productivity was essentially the same across rank, which I thought was really interesting. Um, we complain about you know how how few people do reviews and how you know people are shirking their duties and that sort of thing. But our, our analysis actually shows that most people are re- are meeting their reviewer debts, which I was surprised to see, especially you know given the complaints on on academic Twitter. Um, so yeah, that, that's a few. Um, let my colleagues here talk about some of their own. Anand, you want to jump in, and then Amy, Erica.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Um, you know, so I, I, I as Paul kind of noted, there, there are many findings in the book, you noted this too, Lily, but, um, I, you know, so just kind of running through a few of my favorites that I think are, you know, really interesting. Um, uh, when we're kind of looking at like, you know, I, first of all, I thought it was really kind of just interesting and, and cool that we were able to kind of, um, Look at you know kind of work work life balance in a in a really systematic way, um, and 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 we break that down you know in in chapter three of our book and elsewhere and it, um, and those findings I just find incredibly interesting. Um, uh, in the networks chapter, one thing that that I think is interesting. And that also is something we need to keep working on is that, you know, we had published a piece in, in PS that was kind of looking at the returns that male and female identifying scholars get on their co-authorships um, in terms of submissions and publications. And we had found that, you know, there there seemed to be kind of like a, um, a differential kind of return on investment, if you will, um, for for female identifying scholars in the discipline that they were getting lower returns on co-authorship. Um, one of the interesting things that that came out of our subsequent work, as we were kind of like building on that and then and then doing analysis for the book, is that we found that those kinds of um, differential returns were really more limited to people who primarily work in quantitative methodology, right? So those um, some of those network stories that we that we found and then our, our next iteration seemed to be kind of more conditional on. Um, you know uh, quantitative qualitative divides so one of the things that I think is a, a call for our colleagues to continue working on is trying to figure out What might be some of those differences? among male and female identifying um, You know social scientists who are doing you know quantitative primarily quantitative work What is it about those networks perhaps right that is kind of? Um, producing these different returns and um, so that, that that was something that was interesting and surprising and kind of built off our previous work. Um, and then the last thing I'll I'll say and I'll turn it over to Amy Erica is, um, as Paul kind of noted, I, I I find you know the personality work that we got into really interesting, and um, the interplay, the particular interplay between uh, openness and conscientiousness, um, is just I think very cool. It's something I've been talking to people about when you know when they they'll indulge me to talk about the book, Um, (laughs) um, but kind of where, you know, for, for scholars, where one of these things picks, picks up for the other. Um, And we kind of see, you know, this, um, if you will, right, like that, you know, oftentimes, you know, people, uh, people who are, you know, uh, high in openness, you know, they, they can draw on others, right, who are conscientious, and it kind of helps work it out the door and, and so forth, right. So kind of that balance between, that we see between, you know, collaboration and personality, um, I think is, is really interesting and something that, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought about before we kind of got into it. Uh, Amy, Erica.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I don't know, they've stolen a lot of mine already. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. uh, I would say building on what Anand was talking about, another thing that stands out really strongly in our data is the incredible importance of co-authorship um that co-authorship just works way 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 better than single authorship in terms of getting research um to publication um and that co-authorship often makes up for personality so personality to be honest from my perspective um the personality variables really pop out pretty strongly as important drivers of productivity in our data um but co-authorship reduces the impact of individual personality which is intuitive and makes i mean you can easily come up with a story for how this would work um but it's important to say that basically having a good co-author makes up a lot for not being very conscientious yourself um and um, there's, yeah, so, so getting into good co-authorship relationships, I think, can really help um, in terms of academic productivity. And I'm sure it also um, reduces all kinds of other sort of psychological um, issues related to publication, things like anxiety and, and that kind of thing. Um, I would also say again as before um the tremendous distribution of uh, lots of things like teaching loads i think many of us have some general sense of the distribution of teaching loads but seeing it in a histogram makes it really very stark um ability to spend time on research um, desire probably that we don't measure desire uh to spend time on research um all kinds of things vary tremendously across the professoriate. Um, I would say another thing that um, was kind of a surprise to us, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the differences between poli-sci and in large part because the two disciplines are really very similar. So we started off with a book that was going to be about differences between poli science and and ended up not writing that book because of, disciplinary differences really largely washed out. They were small, inconsistent, mostly, I mean, we would have written a book about a bunch of null findings if we had continued to emphasize the differences between poli-sci and The It's not clear because we don't have enough data from other social science disciplines, whether other social sciences are also really similar to poli-sci and SOC. But at least these two disciplines look like remarkably similar. Even, you know, I'm talking about these histograms of distributions. And yet, if you look at the histograms for poli and soc, they're often almost identical. So the differences are between individuals within various kinds of institutions and the discipline that somebody's in really has very little impact.
1: So you all are very upfront in the preface to the book about the fact that there is a need for more research, um, and continuing research in this area, even though you have a lot of really fascinating findings and you are able to pull together a lot of data. And so what I wanted to ask you about, um, in sort of concluding the conversation about this amazing book, the knowledge polity is what does need to happen next? Where are the research streams and, um, and who are, or or what should be the questions that follow to continue the research.
0: Okay. Uh, so quickly, uh, the one thing that needs, where we need a lot further research is what we've already alluded to, that we can document gaps. Um, and we can say a lot about the gaps because we have spent so much time plowing through the data to really try to understand what's going on. Uh, are you all able to hear me?
4: We can't hear anything you're saying. Oh, I can hear it. Oh, you can? Oh, I yeah. couldn't hear anything she's no, saying. I can't hear it either. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay.
3: Well, sorry for saying that then. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Me
0: too. All right. Um, okay. So I'm going to just keep talking then. Um, so I'll start from the beginning. Okay. To answer your question quickly, Lily, um, one of the things that uh, – that needs to happen is as we've already alluded to, we can say a lot about the gaps that exist. Uh, We have lots and lots of data on gaps and we can tell the story about um, racial and gender gaps uh, in a pretty nuanced way in the data, but ultimately we can't fully explain them um, neither in the quantitative nor the qualitative data. Uh, We can't explain why they have happened. Um, We can, uh, and we can't say, explain them away. Um, the, um, so we would, so, so yeah, there needs to be a lot more research, um, on the, uh, on these issues. The other thing that I would say is, um, that we need, that the future keeps changing. So, uh, We, academia, continues to evolve. We continue to have, um, and, uh, we have changes in the nature of the professoriate, uh, changes in, um, in academic work structures, um, and so we need further work. We, um, for instance, we can't say much about how academia is recovering uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's clear that the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, impacted much of academia, but we can't say anything. We can say something about what it looks like from the middle of the pandemic. We can't really say something about it, say much about how academics are recovering in a um, you know, late pandemic or post pandemic world.
1: So I'd, I'd ask Anand to um, sort of voice some of his ideas about um, what we, we should be looking forward to in terms of continued research in this area beyond as sort of explaining um trying to explain the gaps because as as um amy erica notes the the gaps are there and you did a really good job of sort of fleshing them out um but it's hard it's really hard to sort of explain the gaps
3: yeah um thanks lily and uh thanks america yeah so I, I think that some other things that I would love to see people kind of pick up and run with is, you know, we, we talked before about co-authorship and the importance of co-authorship. And, um, you know, by necessity, we could only get, you know, kind of people's core co-authorship networks in this study, and so I think it would be really interesting for people to do some some work that kind of looks at broader patterns of interaction and collaboration and 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 feedback um, from people. So getting kind of beyond that core network and, and trying to understand a little bit more about the socially embedded nature of academe, right? Because in, in a lot of ways, this book is about the fact that very little of what we do is truly in isolation. You know, um, we are... In networks, and we are in institutions, and and so forth. Um, and another thing that that I think is is important um, that Amy Erica alluded to is um, you know trying to trying to kind of figure out right the lasting effects of the pandemic um, and how these things are going to interface with things like um, our collaborative networks, our our peers, our feedback. Um, you know the. Our patterns of feedback that we get from others, um, the interruptions that have been caused by um, not having conferences in many circumstances for a couple of years. Um, so we think it would be, you know, it'd be really interesting for people to kind of pick that up and and help us kind of understand, um, you know, how all of the things that we kind of set up and study have uh, worked through this period that we're kind of hopefully coming out of, right? Um, and and are going to be there going forward.
1: And Paul, what would you like to see in terms of the follow on to the research that the three of you have done? Sure. Yeah.
4: One of the um, one of the sort of frustrating things that that we wanted to deal with um, sort of nagging questions for the gaps um, and maybe Eric, Erica already talked about this um, was the content of what people study. And how that content the questions that they ask um, is linked to things like journal space um, and treatment in journals and and that's treatment by reviewers um, as well so we just we just don't really we weren't able to do that um, and we tried asking a little bit about the content of what they study but not in any kind of sufficient depth um, and just it's just one little one little nugget that's that still sticks sticks in my craw a little bit um, when we look at <laughs> when we look at sociology, um, is that they tend to have six issues um, of their of their journals um, a year, and, and we t- typically have four in political science, and it shows up in their in the data. So they have. Um, they're less stressed about the review process. They submit fewer articles, but they publish more than we do. They take longer to develop projects. I mean, everything just seems so much more relaxed um, in sociology than it does in political science. And so, I mean, that's that's a big broad one, but what if this kind of thing is playing out in you know the study of racial politics versus gender versus, you know, religion and politics and whatever. I mean, I know religion and politics scholars, the world improved immensely once we had a journal um, attached to the abscess section. So anyway, thinking about, you know, how questions connect to institutional resources and then treatment um, would be would be really fascinating and I think really important.
1: Yeah. And I, I've often seen some in Interesting analysis about the kind of content if you are a say a black man studying racial politics um, and whether or not that gets published as opposed to, say, a black man studying elections um and and those could those understandings of the content um and i know those of us in political theory have some of these same questions as well um since political theory also seems to be still kind of lagging behind in gender representation across the board um, as opposed to our colleagues in the rest of the discipline uh so um, I wanted to thank Paul Jupe, Amy Erica Smith, and Anand Edward Schoke, um for joining me today um, to talk about the knowledge polity, teaching and research in the social sciences. This is published in 2022 by Oxford University Press, and it is actually a propulsive read. Um, so I recommend it to listeners who are looking for some information about political science, sociology, social sciences, race and and. Um, the Academy and gender in the Academy. Um, And, and you'll, you will love reading it because it it is a joy to read. Um, So does anybody want to give a shout out to any brick and mortar stores where one might be able to purchase or order the book?
0: Yeah, actually, um, I'd love to give a shout out to Dog Eared Books, which is a great name. They also have a, a store mascot um, who is a dog. Uh, <laughs> they have a, a golden retreat, lovely golden retriever. Anyway, um, so Dog Eared Books in Ames, Iowa. You can buy it from Dog Eared Books. You can call them up. Uh, you can find Dog Eared Books by googling Dog Eared Books, or you can go to dogearedbooksames dot com. Um, they also have an online ordering service through through bookshop.com.com or .org. bookshop bookshop.org um but yeah, you can just really quick.
4: I'll oh, just point out um, mm-hmm. sorry, bookloft bookloft.com. um it's a great bookstore in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Anna. Uh, I I think these guys have it covered.
1: All right, great. Thank you all for joining me today and talking about the knowledge polity.
4: Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Lily. Thank you,
1: Lily. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it.